Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Welcome back, Progressions listeners. This is episode number six. I've been running a bit behind in this episode. I'm writing this open and finalizing the edits a little closer to my deadline than I'd like to. But hey, things happen. What's important is we're here, we're getting it done, and we've got a great conversation coming at you today. So let's jump into this opening. Our guest this week touches on a lot of great stuff, and I've had a hard time deciding what to open up with. He touched on a few things that I mentioned in episode one of the show, and I think I'd like to elaborate on those. I want to start with the scarcity mindset and then get into a few ways that it can affect your career and your life. For anybody not familiar, the scarcity mindset is essentially the point of view that resources, successes, etc. in life are limited to a finite number. Say, if I make a million dollars or had a hit song, then there would be one less million dollars or one less hit song for you to have. This is A, obviously not true, and B, an extremely limiting way to view life. Now, there are a lot of people that have discussed scarcity mindsets in various industries and explained the concept quite elaborately, so I'm not going to try to compete with them. Instead, I'm going to present a few of my own ideas about it. Let's start with the basics. If you are convinced that success is limited, you will defeat yourself, turn back from the road to your goals, and probably end up looking for a new career, where you will likely once again defeat yourself. Why am I so sure this will happen? Well, because you believe that there is only so much success to be had. So every time you read about someone accomplishing something or one of your peers reaches a milestone, you view that as one less success for you to achieve. Let's flash back for a second. If you were the fourth person in line for school lunch and there was only one slice of cheese pizza left, you're probably going to start getting bummed and thinking about what your next choice would be. That's a logical thought process in that situation. So if you view success as being limited the same way that that pizza was, then your brain will apply those same ideas to your career and your success. Eventually, you will convince yourself there aren't enough successes left for you and that the logical thing to do is to move on to something else. If you believe there is an abundance of success to be had, you would not be defeated. You'd likely be encouraged by or excited for whoever achieved that success. Maybe you'll even want to pick their brain about how they did it because you know it can be done again. Let's move on to some of the negative effects living like this can have. You might have an idea of one of them already, just from the way I've described this so far. Jealousy. Jealousy is the result of the insecurities and fear that arise when you are convinced that everybody around you is taking all the success. Or the pizza. So viewing the world as having limited amounts of success is only going to make you jealous of others. We all know that jealousy leads to thoughts of inadequacy, anger, frustration, and a whole pile of other emotions that are all counterproductive to your goals. Don't allow yourself the space to get jealous of those around you. One more side effect that I want to touch on is a little bit less obvious to most people. In a gig economy like the music industry, the belief that there are limited gigs and limited opportunities for success leads people to overwork and misdirect their energy. You'll try to take every gig that you can, and you will make sacrifices in both your personal and your professional lives to do so. Now, do I agree that in a competitive career choice like music, you need to have hustle? Yes. But do you have to have hustle until it becomes counterproductive and unhealthy? No. You have to learn to recognize when scarcity is disguising itself as hustle. When you are first starting out in music, you need to work. Hard. Very hard. It's how you learn the ropes, meet people, and start to find your path. Eventually, though, you need to recognize what you are saying yes to and what you are saying no to, and why. Every time you say yes to something, you are saying no to something else. I mentioned this in episode one. It sounds simple, but it takes practice. I know because it's something I've struggled with and is one of the things that has affected me the most. 
Let's run through a few examples. If you say yes to a last minute overnight recording session, you're saying no to relaxing and catching up on your favorite show. Easy choice. If you say yes to one more glass of wine after dinner, you might be saying no to the motivation to practice afterwards. If you say yes to a six month tour, you could be saying no to putting your child to bed every night. If you say yes to a low budget, high demand project that you are not creatively invested in, you could be saying no to a really exciting and inspiring project that comes your way shortly after. Some of these choices are obvious. Some are a little tougher, and some are not clear at all. The point is that you need to understand your choices and what the results of them might be. If you are driven by a scarcity mindset, you are likely not thinking twice before taking a gig. You say yes to everything and sort out what happens next later, because you know there's only a limited amount of music being made and one day it will all just magically run out and disappear. That's my first bit of sarcasm in the podcast. I'm excited. So to close on that thought, I'm not telling you not to work hard. I'm telling you to reflect on your choices and understand what you were saying yes to. If you want to be a film composer, saying yes to doing front of house for a world tour is not going to make you a film composer. If you want to release your solo record, doing writing sessions for other artists is not going to write your record. If you want to learn piano, playing video games every night isn't going to teach you piano. If you want to put your kids to bed, doing the night shift at a recording studio isn't going to let you do that. So ditch the mindset that success is limited and make your decisions based on the life that you want to build, not out of FOMO for the last bit of success left in the universe. This week, we'll be chatting with Los Angeles-based producer, songwriter, and musical director, Wayne Miller. Wayne is as comfortable producing in the studio as he is on stage with a band. He's acted as musical director for a range of artists, including Mike Posner, Christina Perry, Aluna George, and Snake Hips. And as a producer, he has recent releases with Samuel Prophet, Julian Roy, and Atlantic Records artist, Milk. In addition to creating and performing, Wayne is also a co-founder of the LA Songwriters Collective, as well as a mentor to up-and-coming producers and artists. This man likes to stay busy. Welcome to the show, Wayne Miller. Hey, thanks so much. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. How's, uh, how are things? Are you surviving the heat? Surviving the heat? Yeah, power went out at home yesterday, so um, surviving. I think it's not back up yet, but it's nice and cool in the studio, so can't complain. It's good. Well, there's no windows in the studio, right? It stays cool that way. I actually do have a window, which is great, but uh, it has not been open for <laughs> the last few days. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's great. So, thanks for coming on. I figured we would just kind of start from the beginning because we know each other enough, but I don't actually know your whole story. So sure. if you don't mind going back, yeah. how did you, how'd you get into music? Did you like to play as a kid? How'd you, how'd you start out? I did play as a kid. Yeah. I started playing percussion and drums and stuff first. Um, you know, I played in church, my aunt played percussion in church. So I kind of got into that kind of world first, maybe around nine or 10 and started playing guitar around 10. Um, had an opportunity. I don't know if there's music in school is here. I don't think so. I have, uh, I should find out. I have a son who's just started elementary school, but, but there was an orchestra and band and stuff like that in public school, uh, where I grew up in Oregon. So kind of as a fluke thing, took up the upright bass and orchestra. So yeah. And then just, yeah, kind of friends at church, friends at school, just started playing in bands when I was like 12, 13 years old playing bass primarily. So yeah, that kind of is where it all started. That's amazing. I've, uh, in my time, run across so many people that started in church or they learned like five instruments in church. <laughs> totally. like I, never, I never played in church or sang in church or anything like that. But so many of the really talented guys I come across, they're always like, yeah, or guys and gals. Totally. Uh, just all came up through there. Yeah. It's sort of that thing where just you get an opportunity and then, you know, there's also, the, everyone always needs a bass player, right? So, you know, <laughs> I enjoyed playing bass, but I kind of figured out pretty early on that like I could always kind of get a gig or I could always be in a band because, you know, everybody wanted to be the lead guitar player, wanted to be the singer, you know, so. As I started started with bass. And I've only played one church gig and it was on bass. Oh, no way. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, how did you end up in LA? Did you, did you go anywhere else? Did you go to music school? I didn't go to music school. Um, I grew up in Salem, Oregon, which is about an hour south of Portland. And I moved to Portland when I was 18 to kind of pursue music. I put a little studio together in my basement. I lived in a house with like five guys and my bedroom was in the basement and we had this sort of 
common space in the basement and everyone else in the house played instruments. So we kind of, there was like a drum kit there and, you know, guitars and keyboards. And so I turned my bedroom into the control room, which was really funny. So I was like 18, 19, I had clients like coming over and I kind of had like a couch. I kind of disguised it pretty well. And a lot of people didn't really realize it was a bedroom. And so I started producing like indie bands and stuff. And I was thinking about going to college and studying composition and kind of doing a more formal thing. And I don't know, I just, I never did. I just kind of got, I got my first tour, like a little regional tour when I was 18. I was kind of producing indie bands and kind of felt like I'd found my, my thing already, I guess. So you jumped on as a session player or it was a band that you were in? Um, I jumped on as a session player. Yeah. So when I was in high school, there was a few producers that I kind of got connected with through like the local music scene in Salem and Portland. And some of the guys in those bands started producing and, um, you know, I played upright bass and that was sort of a cool Northwesty. I don't know. There was a lot of like bands and artists around doing this sort of folk, like Mumford and Sons thing, like 15 years before Mumford and Sons. Right. Um, <laughs> Which was funny. And so, yeah. And so I started playing upright on these like alt country set. Alt country was like a big thing. You know, this was like 2000, 2000, 2001, 2002. You know, it was like, um, I don't know. There was like, you know, Wilco and, you know, these yeah. kind of bands were doing stuff. And anyway, um, so yeah. So anyway, so I was kind of getting sessions as a bass player and that kind of led to some of those artists who were making records, doing smaller, like kind of regional tours and yeah. So you, did you ever think that you would stay in Portland? I mean, there's a great music scene and amazing food and beer and all other scenes up there. Did, yeah. did you ever have a feeling that you're like, oh, this is it. I'm going to stay here and take this place over? Kind of, yeah. Um, so my wife Meg and I lived there. I lived there for about five years. We got married a couple years into that time. And she had a cool job that she really liked. And I was touring with a few local artists and playing in some cool bands and doing stuff like that. And um, had a studio space, like a uh, couple different you know, like studio spaces around town. And yeah, it kind of felt like this is cool. But then I kind of was like, I'm playing every gig that I kind of wanted to play. I kind of played all the venues, you know, and I was like, I don't know, because I wasn't into really teaching and I wasn't really into like the jazz scene or the classical scene where there's a little more like consistency like a, you know a symphony or playing like jazz clubs around or teaching and and that by that by no means is like the only thing you can do but those are just some of the more like stable consistent ways to make a living there so yeah so I had a bunch of friends who moved to LA and who'd gone to college went to MI started touring and so they'd all told me like oh yeah come to LA everyone's getting these gigs with all these major <laughs> pop artists you know and I was like that sounds cool you know um, and so I think it was 2007, a friend of mine said, Hey, there's this artist who just got signed to Sony records. They're looking for a bass player. I can, I'm really good friends with a guitar player. I could probably get you an audition. I was already feeling a little bit like maybe Portland is not going to be the permanent home. Um, so I flew down for the audition and got the gig and didn't tell the artist I didn't live in LA yet. <laughs> And just like, that was kind of like the impetus for moving. So moved like the beginning of 2008. And then jumped right on the road? Well, kind of, yeah. It was kind of looking that way. But, you know, as things go with like, as things can go, this was kind of a newer artist, recent signing, you know, so there was a lot of sort of like, oh, you might be opening for so-and-so and you might be opening for so-and-so. And it just, there was a lot of near misses like that. But I ended up on a six or eight week tour in that summer, like the summer of 2008, you know, making more money than I ever made and you know touring all over the states and stuff so I was like okay I guess this is a thing you know right like oh man this is this is it it's working kind of yeah it's, yeah yeah that first tour did that make you feel like that was like a breakthrough in LA or were, were you just like you got your foot in the door and you're like I think I understand how this place works like was there a gig that you were like hey man I, I think I figured this place out kind of yeah it took another maybe year and a half or something I think it was like it was like early 2010 maybe. And you know, I, when I moved to LA when I was 22, almost 23, I think. And I was like ready to go. You know, I was like, I had my gear. I was like, I'm young. I'm, I'm, I've got talent. I've got gear. I've got, you know, and I was just like, ready. I was like, give me all the, like I was going all these big auditions and I wasn't getting the gigs, you know, and I couldn't quite figure it out. Of course, I didn't know very many people. I wasn't very experienced. So it took probably until like early 2010 that I kind of got a random call 
from another bass player who I had met, who I'll mention here, named Eric Curtis, who's like an amazing bass player, Michael Buble, all kinds of Shakira, all kinds of amazing artists. And I had met him on a tour in the fall of 2009 with that artist I'd, um, that was signed to Sony. And so he referred me to cover for him for like a one-off in Thailand in like early 2010. And this was an artist who was also signed to Epic at the time. And so I was like, oh, maybe this is, maybe this is a good sign, right? Because I, I didn't have to audition. It's kind of, I mean, I had to learn like 15 songs in like a week, you know, and like fly to, yeah. fly to Thailand for like one gig. But I was like, this is cool. Like this is someone who's been here, who's been established, who's really been successful, who's kind of, I guess, acknowledging me or giving me a shot. So, so that was, so it probably took about two full years before I felt like I kind of was doing something right, I guess. Yeah, it's amazing how far uh, somebody vouching for you goes. Oh, it's everything. Yeah. I mean, every gig yeah. that I've gotten, every opportunity I've gotten that's been that's been really great and worthwhile and really, it's all been that. It's been somebody yeah. referring me. You know, there's like a comfort in in having a familiar name, even if they haven't met you. They're like, oh yes, I've heard his name five times. <laughs> totally. We can hire him now. Yeah. So totally. When you first started out, could you put your finger on why you weren't getting those initial? gigs do you know i think um i don't know i guess i sort of overestimated the skill and the sort of like gear and the sort of presentation factor mm. maybe and i sort of underestimated the relational factor um and so once i'd done enough like of these bigger pop sort of auditions and then there was sort of a few bass players who just kind of kept getting this the gigs you know and like a tour cycle would end for an artist and then there'd be like an audition for another big artist i'm like oh cool i'm gonna go and then like the same person who just finished a tour would like get that one and i'm like oh man okay i guess these three people you know and it's not three obviously it's like you know it's like a lot more than that but it just kind of felt like that um yeah. in different genres and and stuff like that and so i guess i sort of that took a while to sort of click and be like oh like relationships really do matter and the skill and the gear factor and like the presentation was all there and then it's just sort of and i guess at the time it was kind of like tv gigs like being able to sort of send someone like your your late show performance right that was like a real rite of passage at that time and so i finally got to play on a string of those um like the tonight show and like there used to be uh craig ferguson which was like the late late show and there was i think we did like three or four we did like jimmy kimmel and and so that was a real like breakthrough for me. Like, okay, I can, this is like sort of like a calling card a little bit. I can send these links around to people. And that, I don't know, that seemed to be sort of like a barrier of entry for like a lot of legit work at that time. I could see that. Definitely. It's a stamp. It's like, hey, I, I made it. I was on TV. <laughs> right. Everybody was cool with it. Yeah. So. I didn't get fired. Like I made it through all those, you know, and you could send it yeah. to someone who was sort of like going, who can we hire that's going to be like a ringer who's going to nail it, who we don't have, a, if we don't have a lot of time to audition or necessarily to go through a whole thing. Like we can just watch them again. There's vouching. There's like major label maybe behind it or whatever, you know? Do you think there's, I mean, you, you may, you may have felt this way or you don't feel this way anymore. Do you think there's more pressure to it, to a TV performance than a live gig? I mean, you play in front of 10,000 people or you play on TV to like 10, but a million people are watching it. I don't know. The TV thing was always, I guess what, it, what clicked for me was like the way it sounded is so much less forgiving. So, you know, you play in 10,000 people. It's like most of those venues that are that big, they don't sound that good, you know? Yeah. Not even like you play a wrong note necessarily, but just like the feel of the music and just everything. And then I guess, yeah, sort of hearing back a couple of those early TV performances, like, wow, that really is, everything is just right there. Everything sounds like, a, <laughs> every instrument sounds like a DI, even if it's a mic, you know what I mean? Like it just, it's, it's so unforgiving. So I think that's more the pressure thing. But doing a couple of them and then, a couple of those earlier ones, we did like a couple takes and I was like, oh yeah, this isn't like, it's not SNL, you know, it's not live. It's right. like, okay, okay. It's not that high pressure. Everyone there is very calm because it's just like, there's a day job for the crew. They just clock in and clock out every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. So once you experience that, it's a little bit more like, okay, no one's, no one's holding their breath here, you know? Yeah. Did you have to do any of the, uh, the super early morning ones where you, you like, you tape at like 5 a.m. Oh like yeah. A rock show? Oh Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been on the Today Show set, I don't know how many times. You arrive at like 3.30 in the morning and they're always like, we need someone 3.30. You know, so I'm like an I'm like an MD or like I did one last year. I was MDing but wasn't, um, 
wasn't playing, you know, and so I was like representing, I was like bringing the playback rig and like representing and you get there like three 30 and then nobody does, nobody does anything till like five 30, you know? So you're just like, okay, I'm sleeping for like three hours in the hotel. I got to get there. I got to get my Uber or whatever. And then I like get there all in like in a huff and then there's like, cool. Yep. Yeah. And I like the back lines all kind of like set up and you're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess I'm going to sit here for two hours and drink coffee. Uh, you mentioned, uh, MD. So when did you transition from player in the band to musical director? That was uh, probably around 2009. I did a tour early that year with a major label artist as a bass player. And after that tour, um, the guy who had produced that album, a guy named Kurt Schneider, who's a fantastic producer, bass player um, as well, he called me for a couple of like younger artists he was working with. He thought, hey, Wayne's pretty young. You know, he's probably got, you know... He had a sense that I maybe had some friends who were also maybe a little younger, a little more uh, maybe affordable and sort of looking to kind of tour. And, you know, he um, yeah, you know, has a family and stuff like that and was a little bit older. And I think a lot of his network was like the session players who are amazing, who are playing on all kinds of huge records. And so he was, you know, obviously those players are playing on the records, but they may or may not want to tour and et cetera. So that kind of led me to sort of kind of get into that world and start getting more into like playback rigs and running auditions and running rehearsals and all that kind of stuff. So if you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. When, uh, speaking of playback rigs, when, when do you feel like playback like really kind of started to take over? If you were playing in indie bands, you guys probably weren't playing any tracks or maybe somebody had a laptop with one, one thing, but like when did like proper setups pop up in your world and were you kind of like thrown off? Like, wait a minute, how much of this is fake? Yeah. Um, a few of my friends, like I said, when I first got to LA had been doing like these bigger pop tours. And so I kind of became aware of that, like when I first got to town, you know, um, but I didn't really, there wasn't a lot of tracks, like the first, some of the tours I did in like 2011 with this artist Lenka, there was a few tracks, you know, there wasn't a lot, but there was a little bit kind of being run by the drummer, maybe a few loops or a few subtle things. And, and so that was sort of like, okay, cool. And then it kind of just started to sort of snowball from there because it started to turn into maybe the band could be a little bit smaller. A lot of startup artists maybe are looking to replicate as much of the record sound because they've put a lot of time and a lot of energy and that sort of gets shopped around. Like a lot of times the recordings sort of get shopped around. And so then you're trying to showcase maybe for a label or a manager or a publicist or something. And, you know, you want it to sound live and sound like it has more energy, but you don't want it to be too far off from the record. And so then it's like, well, that sound really is kind of indicative of the record. So let's have that in the tracks. And then all oh, those background vocals are pretty cool. We spent a lot of time on those. And, you know, they would always be like, hey, get people who can sing, you know, right? Like drummer can sing, guitar player can sing. And so everyone yeah. can, everyone's like, cool, I can sing. And then you get in rehearsal and I'm like, well, we, we can all sing, but we don't sound great. We're not like trained, most of us, you know. And so then it's like, well, the backgrounds are cool, but like, let's just have those kind of tucked and supplementing the backgrounds in the track and so the tours that I was doing in 2012, 2013 started to become definitely more pop, like in terms of style and then also just, yeah, much more track focused. And I think there was a sense of that too, in a way, just to kind of sonically, I don't want to say compete because that sort of maybe has the wrong connotation, but like supporting on arena tours, if you're the first or second of four and you're sort of like, this is a starting out like recent label signee or something like that. It's like you don't want to be up there with your three players kind of just banging it out and then like the headliner gets out and they've got like this epic show, you know. Exactly. Yeah. There's fifteen so. people on stage plus plus some backing tracks and a bazillion yeah. tracks and like dancers and lights and confetti and you know, so at least trying to sort of show up sonically and musically like in a a relevant way, I guess. Yeah. I mean I'm I'm all for it personally, you know, putting on the best presentation of of your music as you can. Yep. But there has to be like, there has to be a fine line in conversation when you're prepping for these things where you're like, 
It's a lot of fake stuff. <laughs> do we want to bring a keyboard player on? Or do you want to do this with three guys in a lot of track? Do you ever run into like, if, if you're willing to say, run into situations where you're like, this is going to sound great, but it's going to look a little off? Totally. Yeah, and I always try to, well, I should say always, but I most often try to encourage people, like, if you want energy, like, guitars and drums bring energy. You know, so, and, and I'm a bass player, but I'll be the first person to be like, you know, a lot of styles of music will cut the bass player first just because there's like programming and there's stuff going on. And a lot of times it's synth based stuff anyway, or it's programmed stuff. So, um, not necessarily advocating that that's what people should do. <laughs> but if I'm thinking about the best show, I'm like, well, li if there's live drums, that, that brings a lot of energy. If the records have live drums, then that should be represented, I think. And then live drums over programming brings energy. And then, of course, whether or not the record has guitar, then adding guitars in some way brings energy as well, just like pushes air, whether you have an amp. or, And there's just like the movement, like the physical motion. Like people, you know, this will make sense, obviously, but people listen with their eyes first, right? In a live experience, they walk in, they're like, oh, how many people are here? How, how What do the lights look like? How many people are on set? You know, like, what is the singer wearing what is the whatever right you know how big are the guitar amps like it's all part of the live experience and so once i started to figure that out i was like okay guitars movement drums movement that equals energy people listen with their eyes first okay so it started to really become more about the music obviously has to be great and the players have to be great and that all has to work but a big factor just really started to become the visual and started to become the energy more so, I think, than trying to sort of preserve like the integrity of the record, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, you're there to give a visual performance and to, you know, please, please people. Exactly. And, and you know, you can listen to the record if you want to hear the record, you know, exactly at a certain yeah. point, you know, so that was that's a, there's a dance there. Some artists are like, I really want to stick to the record. I don't some people are like I don't. I want to do a completely different thing live, which can be fun too. They're just like, I want to almost just like reinterpret all the songs and I don't want to use any tracks or, you know, so it's cool. Everyone kind of has their own, their own, you know, perspective on what live music, how it should be. Right. Which yeah. is interesting because yeah. some people will be like, oh, it, it should sound nothing like the record. If they want to hear the record, hear the I find that to be like kind of an interesting factor is that people have like very strong opinions about what live shows should be. They can be informed by any number of things. Like I watch this, I watch the Beyonce live thing and like, you know what I mean? Like whatever it might be. And, and that's great, you know, but it might be like, oh, I watched this Rolling Stones video and there's like no tracks. So I don't want any tracks. You're like, okay, well, I mean, you're not the Rolling Stones, but like we could, we can give it a shot, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You get a, get a 75 year old man doing backflips out there. Totally. <laughs> uh, so, so your time, how, how long would you say you were mainly a music director for? Um, probably from 20 maybe 2011 and 2012, I was still doing, I was doing both. Like I had certain gigs, certain tours, certain things where I was just playing bass and then th some things where I was MDing. And then probably from 2013 um, until now has been all live stuff has pretty much been as an MD and then sometimes as a bass player and then oftentimes just as an MD. Like the, the people you listed at the beginning of this, um, like I toured and played bass with Christina Perry for the her whole album cycle. The Mike Posner thing, I played bass off and on, but was never intending to be on the road like for the full album cycle. So I did a lot of the promo and stuff like that and then had a couple different bass players and then had a guy who kind of made it through the whole rest of the, who was kind of available and schedules lined up to do the whole rest of the thing. And then the other two or three people you listed, I was just MD and never played with. Okay, and just put it together and send them off, make sure they're tight and ready to go. Yeah, and sometimes it's like TV stuff, you know, like Luna George and Snake Hips were, I got connected to through my friend Joe Clegg, who, who was their primary MD in the UK. And so sometimes like he'll have artists come over here and he's based there. And so like I'll cover and take over for like a round of rehearsals or like we did Snake Hips, we did a Jimmy Kimmel performance or we did a, actually a couple. So it's interesting because... When I started MDing, it was sort of like, oh, I'm touring, I'm in like, I'm in the band, I guess, quote unquote. And it was like, and then it sort of morphed more into like, and I didn't realize that artists would sort of, I don't want to say get passed around in a certain way, but like, there are just certain needs. Like, I've had MDs in New York, MDs in the UK cover for me if I can't travel or the time or the budget or whatever doesn't permit. So, so there's also that piece where the MD sort of, 
is more like a plumber or something. They just like show up to like fix a broken pipe for like a day or two. And then, you know what I mean? So it's like less of this major sort of, I don't know, like artistic role. And sometimes it's just coming in and being like trying to like troubleshoot why like the Ableton rig isn't working the way it's supposed to. Right. You know, have you run into situations where, I mean, I would imagine there's some artists where like the, the MD needs to be out there because they might want to make a lot of changes. Have you ever been in a situation where you're not out with the band and the artist is like, we really need to redo this like transition and can you help us? Is, is that, does that go down? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, working with Mike, Mike Posner, I mean, he's incredible. You know, he, he never wanted to sort of do the same thing, especially in promo. Like we did that song. I took a pill in Ibiza on a whole bunch of TV shows and he never wanted to really do the same performance twice, which I thought was really cool. You know, so we did Conan, we did like a 12 piece string section with singers and did it totally stripped down. When he did the tonight show, the roots backed him up. When we did Ellen, it was like the main normal arrangement. Um, I think he did another one, maybe completely acoustic. So, and even when we would do like radio promo, you know, we would have these like 10 minute slots on these big sort of summer, like radio, um, like festival shows, you know, like the Wango Tangos and like the, and those, and and we would do those like over and over. And he's like, I don't want to do the same set. So he'd be like, we've got 10 minutes. I want to do like these two songs and like a medley of these other five songs. And he, and it was, so it was like, it was, it was great, but it turned into really having uh, Kevin and Ben, Kevin, the drummer and Ben, the keyboard player on that tour became quickly like the MDs, like the chair MDs, the band leaders, because there was so much happening on the road. It was just like, he'd be like, eh, I don't really want to do these songs. Like you said, transition. I don't want to do this one into that one. Or like, let's change the key of this one or speed that one up or whatever. So it just wasn't realistic. Like I could do certain things remotely, of course, like programming wise and like sending out sort of reference tracks for rehearsals and stuff like that. But um, especially with Mike, it was just like they needed, he needed people that were just there day in and day out to be able to work those things out and sound checks and stuff. Yeah, you're making like working on arrangement changes on the bus and stuff and exactly finishing things in the hotel on the way to the on the <laughs> venue. He would write songs and sound check and be like, oh, let's play that one tonight. I like that, you know, or like, or, you know, <laughs> which I just love, you know, so it's, and, yeah, it's great. I feel like that'd be so exciting. It's very exciting. And it's very much not like a, t- a typical pop gig in that way. Um, yeah, which is cool. So yeah, some gigs, it's like you rehearse for a couple weeks. And then like with Christina, we played this by and large, the same arrangements, we'd switch the set and stuff. But certain arrangements just worked great and we didn't really change them for like two years, you know? Yeah. And so with Mike, it was a very, it was almost, almost the opposite. So it was fun. It's amazing. Yeah. So I know you're in the studio more. What was, what was the catalyst? Like when, when did you start to want to get back like behind the gear and less, less road and stuff like that? Yeah. It's really interesting. I've, I've reflected on this a good amount um, because certainly from a sort of industry standpoint, working with some of these bigger names on the live side is like, can be very defining um, in a good way because it can be get more of those sort of opportunities. And like I said, sort of getting opportunities to step in even temporarily to cover for other, you know, higher profile gigs and stuff like that. Um, But what I realized when I moved to LA, I had been producing, I'd been writing, I had been, you know, mixing and doing all the sort of studio stuff in Portland. And I felt very comfortable there. It was a much smaller town. I kind of knew a lot of people and got to LA. And again, I was like 22 and I was like, ah, it's a big city. You know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to kind of focus on being a bass player. I feel like this is like probably my greatest strength at this point. Um, And I really just didn't sort of tell anyone that I produced or that I wrote songs or that I could mix or anything like that. And I sort of would work on like little things at, you know, at my apartment with artists that I was kind of working with or people I knew, but it was like very, very low key. And again, I wasn't sort of like marketing, I guess myself as that. And, and so part of it was really just going like, I love creating, I prefer being in the studio. So part of it was like, I want that to be my long-term thing anyway. I don't want to tour forever. Um, and then also was having kids. So I, I also knew like, I don't really want to be on the road, especially when my kids are young. So we had our first Emmett, who's almost six, um, in November of 2014. And then I did a whole nother year of, of touring with Christina Perry on her album cycle, like Emmett's whole first year. Um, but I kind of had this sense like, okay, he's going to be a year old. He's really going to start. The older he gets, the more he's going to notice that I'm not there, the more he's going to be conscious of that, I think. And um, so, yeah, so it was sort of a combination. And it honestly, it was kind of just getting over like my fears of kind of putting myself out there as a producer. Because as you know, I mean, we're in Los Angeles and it's like where a lot of the biggest records ever and continually are made, 
you know, and the producers that make those records, the sort of the highest selling, the highest charting, the most played, whatever records get made here by people that live here and people that say they're producers and say they're songwriters. And so I had this sense of like, if I'm saying I'm a producer, I'm a songwriter, I'm going to do those things. I'm going to try to represent myself as that. It just felt, I don't know, it just felt kind of scary, I guess, initially. So I kind of had to get over that. And and having some success on the live side, I guess, working with some bigger name artists gave me a little bit, maybe more confidence. But it's also been challenging. Like, you know, there's a sense too in LA, and I don't know if you get this, because I know you wear a lot of hats too at times, where, you know, you do one thing, or I do one thing well as a bass player, and some people will always just see me as a bass player. They wouldn't want to hire me or work with me as an MD. It's like, well, you're a bass player. Like, if we want an MD, we'll get someone else who we don't know yet, who is introduced to us as an MD, you know? And as an MD, it's like someone might not necessarily receive me as a producer or see me as a producer because they're like, well, there's other people who are producers. You're an MD, you know? So so that transition has been a bit challenging because because there are experts at every every position, I guess, in this city. You know, there's a few guys who master all the records that win Grammys and there's a few people who mix all the records who win Grammys, you know, and not all of them. Obviously, I'm exaggerating, but... Um, and I think that's starting to change, which I think is cool because there's more artists doing more things themselves. There's more people doing things from, you know, top to bottom in terms of producing, mixing, engineering, writing. But anyway. Yeah, I, I, I totally I totally agree with you. I feel like sometimes you have to like, because everybody, there's so many job overlaps, you know, like obviously an MD is a musically talented person who's going to be able to produce a band in a studio the same way they do on a stage or like, a keyboard player can also play synth bass. You know, there's like, there's a lot of overlap. And uh, yeah, I feel like you have to sometimes actively try to change people's perception. And you're like, yes, I do that and I do this and I do that. But what I want to do for you is I want to do this. And I do that, but we've never done that before. So will you, will you trust me? Did you, is there anything that you did that helped you like break any of those walls down? Because I know that, I know a lot of people run into that where they're like, yes, I do all five of these things, but I only really want to do three of them. Well, yeah, and that's like you know, the, whatever the age-old tale of like, yeah, I'm an actor, but what I really want to do is direct. Or, you know, I'm a director, but what I really want to do is write, you know? and Right, exactly, yeah. It, it, there's like, there's such a, it's like an age-old thing. And I think a big part of it for me was just like, really like owning that and being like, yeah, I produce. And like, basically, instead of introducing myself to people as like, oh, I'm, a, I'm an MD or I tour with this person or that person, just being like, I'm a music producer. You know, just because I... Right now I'm doing that 30% of the time and I'm MDing 70% of the time doesn't mean I'm less of a producer or less, you know. So some of it just started to be a shift to just sort of sharing that because uh, it's so funny when, like for me touring, and I think for a lot of people, there's like a sense like if they've seen me or not seen me and I've been on the road for a couple of years, they just assume I'm on the road forever. You know, I'll see some people now that I haven't seen for a year and they'd be like, so have you been in town much lately? And I'm like, I mean, pandemic notwithstanding, but there's still a sense that like I've I'm still on the road just forever. I've been on tour for forever, you know. And it's like I haven't really been on a tour, like I said, for like four years or something. Um, <laughs> so it's it's really funny. But yeah, so I think it's representing myself that way. You know, I've tried to learn to really put the types of songs I want to work on like first and really make that a super high priority and just figure out ways to work on music that I love that I really really feel strongly about and that's a bit of a shift to be honest from the live side. Like there is, there is a sense on the live side. I think of like going, I want to be proud of the work I'm doing. I want to be, I want to like the music. I want to like the people, you know, there's the people music money thing. You know, you want to have two out of three or what, you know, you've probably heard that thing. And I think when it came to making records and songs, like nobody cares how much I got paid to make something or not paid to make something. And nobody necessarily cares you know, how it was released or, or under what circumstances the record was made, they just know if they like the song or not, you know? And so I've really started to notice, like, even when I was starting to try to kind of get off the road and transition, I just tried to work on stuff I really liked and mix stuff for free. I put like a mobile rig together on the road and started to just do as I'd get up early. I'd go to sleep early on the bus. I'd get up early and go in the dressing room and set up like a little setup and try to just mix and do as much stuff as I could on the road to start representing myself as a producer. And in a lot of a lot of ways, when I was remote at that time, it was just it was like mixing and doing like little additional production things and stuff like that, just to try to work on the stuff that I really like. Because then I could say, "Hey, I made this," and someone could say, "Oh, I like that." We could work on this, 
you know and so on the live side and i do think on the studio side too having like name credits and label credits and all that stuff is great obviously and i'm sure you could speak to that as well on your side of things but anyway so the live side when i first started it was a little bit more like oh you're working with so and so like it was it wasn't necessarily oh their music's amazing it was just like oh they sell a lot of tickets or like there was almost like a different metric for the live side like whether or not it's the most incredible artistic expression doesn't doesn't always carry as much weight as oh it's a high paying gig or it's high profile or they sell a lot yeah. of tickets or they're very famous like even if no one loves the song or the, if the song is really popular but it's not like an incredibly well written song does that make sense oh yeah totally so i it's think a more name recognition totally and- in the studio side it was more i just started noticing like i would work on something in a big studio on a big budget but if the song didn't turn out great like it didn't net me more work no more opportunities but if i made something in my apartment with like my tape deck and the song was just really good and the vocal performance was really cool like i could get i would get work from that you know so it was it's a different metric so many careers hinge on the song completely (laughs) a great a great song inspires everybody to do great work but then also makes the job easier because i mean it's great acoustic guitar and vocal or piano and vocal so of course it's going to be great with strings or not with strings or with a, you know whatever it is it's like it was already great and everybody just got to make it better a hundred percent yeah i always say a great song always wins and i think that's absolutely true and the live thing there's just there are so many other factors obviously a great song opens the door for for everything to go to radio and all that kind of stuff and to build a fan base but if you're working with an artist who's already established, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Obviously, they have their songs that are well-known, that are maybe hits, or that have their fan base built around them. But there's just so many more factors that go into the live world. And so I had to really think way more singularly when I got into how do I grow my presence and my work and my uh, the quality of my work and my network and everything I do as a producer. Um, I just realized I had to focus on a lot fewer things and really try to become great at just making really great music and not sort of there's a different set of politics i guess maybe and there's a different sort of culture and stuff like that for sure um but gosh i've been trying to just like i got so good at that in a way on the live side that the same politics don't really translate and also like you like we're saying a great song just like it sort of supersedes all that stuff Right, right. No, no one really cares well, also, how you made a it. a great or... band as well. Like, I mean, think of how many bands you've seen that they just blow your mind with a crazy show and then you walk out and you're like, I can't remember anything about the music, but they were amazing. Totally. I loved it. Yeah, and it, it's like I would, I'll pay and want to have that experience just because of that. And, you know, obviously someone like Billie Eilish is incredible and like, you know, look at Phineas, just someone goes like, hey, there's a couple great, I mean, there's more than a couple great songs there, but there's a couple songs that really broke through on a big scale and and it, you know, it paves the way. And I, obviously he's incredibly talented, writer, producer, oh, yeah. mixer, all the things like, um, but it's amazing to see how a couple songs really, it seems, you know, obviously he'd been, he's been building his skill set forever and I don't know him personally. So I don't know that much more than anyone would if they did a Google on his, on his, uh, (laughs) you know, story, but it just is cool to notice, I think on the live side, or I'm sorry, on the record side, if you can make a great song, write a great song, it's like opportunities are there on the live side. It typically takes time. You know, it typically takes time to build something. Um, Back to Billie Eilish. I love that what they did, and I, I don't know them either, so I'm just speaking from my assumption. They Obviously, they did what they wanted to do, and they made great music, and it does not fit into the mold of pop music, but yet it's massive hit pop music. And I just love that that there seems to be a door now that's starting to open where it's like the the art and the authenticity of something can be like a radio hit now. It doesn't have to have four-on-the-floor kick doesn't have to have the boxes that it you know that used to need to be checked i feel like 10 years ago like there was not to knock hit songs from 10 years ago or, or earlier i mean oh i couldn't agree great, more great pop songs are great pop songs totally but you're absolutely right i think there is a sense of authenticity there's a sense of vulnerability that's and i think drake you know has been a big proponent of that like yeah musically dynamically lyrically obviously billy eilish and so yeah an artist like lana del rey and there you know there's just a sense of like of just this vulnerability and a personability there that 
um, I think, yeah, I agree. It is cool. It's less of like a character. You know, I think there was a certain time where I felt like pop music was not necessarily inauthentic, but there was a sort of maybe more of a, more of a character to sort of be maintained or sort of like fed into in a way. Yeah. There was an image that had to be mostly, yeah, mostly filled, you know? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Um, so bass player, MD, producer, you're going to be biased in your answer to this question, but I feel like most of the people that fill those roles that I've met are bass players. That's interesting. I've, I've worked with multiple bass players that were great producers. Do you, what is it about bass that, <laughs> that like makes people this, this all-round musician? Because like you said earlier, like nobody wants to be the bass player. No, everybody, you know, it's just you play one note over in the corner and like right. it's not the flashy job. But then in the end, these these people, I feel like, turn out to be like monster musicians. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's I've kind of noticed that as well because a lot of the sort of producers who I've sort of looked up to over the years, the Michael Elizondos and Justin Meldel Johnsons and, you know, the list goes on and on. You know, John Joseph is incredible. Um, there's so many bass players like you said and i think i sort of make up that it takes a certain personality to sort of choose the bass or sort of like this awareness of sort of like sort of getting in the back seat like on purpose <laughs> like <laughs> even like you know like the front seat's like open but they're like i'll I'll just go in the back like someone's gonna show up that's gonna want the front seat more than me <laughs> right you know and so there's like this willingness to do that and then i think like for me, it was with it was an orchestra. I would just like be playing the bass part, and then also sometimes it'd just be like eighty-two bars of rest, you know, and like symphonic music sometimes. And so I'd be sitting in these rehearsals, and like there's just the bass parts are simpler. There's a physical limitation to string bass to bass guitar and stuff. And so I think all that sort of sort of feeds into maybe having my ears and my mind be more open. And then I, honestly, for me, it was just spending hours and hours in rehearsals, whether it was jazz band or orchestra or you know, symphony or whatever, just listening to all the other parts and starting to understand how the harmony and how all the rhythms and how everything fit together and the melodies and then playing bass, you're not most often playing chords. And I think as a pianist or a keyboard player, a guitar player, like there is a potential to sort of accompany yourself. You know, you play a whole piece on the piano. Of course you can on bass too, but you know, it's not as traditional. So all that is to say it's simpler. Um, I think, yeah, maybe as an MD playing, I was like maybe able to follow things more or have my ears to op- open to more things you know while i'm playing because i am playing one picture in i'm playing one note in the corner you know so i can sort of hear what's going on with the guitar and stuff like that because i'm not like oh no like the you know my b strings out of tune while i'm playing a chord on the guitar like i'm not playing a chord you know so i don't know yeah i don't know if it's like a temperament thing and also just a sort of like like nature of just like the instrument or something i don't know I'm going to ask every bass player producer that comes on the show until until we figure it out. I, w- I want to know. I'm going to listen because <laughs> I, I want to hear whatever I make a chart. Um, I wanted to jump back. I remembered my question. Yeah. So you, when you were making that shift into uh, into producer, it sounds like you you were I don't know if, if you were actively like having like a mindset change of the way you viewed yourself and how you interacted with people. Is that something that you think just changed with you over the years? Or did you like go on like a retreat for a week on an island and come back and you're like, this is what I'm going to do. This is, was there anything that like caused that shift or, or encouraged it? Um, well, I think there was a couple of things. One was the sort of sense of like, I really want to do this at a professional viable level in a way that is not just like, I sort of haven't had a backup plan in a sense like I, I didn't go to college and have a degree so that was sort of like a thing that kind of was somewhat useful with touring but then when I got off the road I was like I, I want to make a full-time living as a producer in the studio and and also as an MD but like a remote MD largely and here um, my wife was you know going on maternity leave and then not planning on going back to her job um, and she worked full-time before we had kids so there was a piece of it was just like I got to figure this out like I'm going to I don't know, put myself to the test in a way and see if I can really do this at like a, on a professional level, make a living doing it. Um, and then as I sort of started to do that, I started to see how scattered my approach was and how much I was trying to translate certain, um, maybe mindsets or like I was saying certain, uh, sort of political or uh, politics pieces from touring and stuff like that. So, um, so I got exposed to this coaching idea and, we both have a mutual friend, David Gerber, who's an amazing 
transformational coach. So there was a lot in that. My initial like eight months, uh, I think it was eight or nine months I did uh, with him that was super cool. And so much of it was just about me taking ownership of like what I wanted to see. And so much of my approach before was really like, I'm waiting on the world to sort of offer me a gig. Like I'm waiting on the world to sort of acknowledge me as a world-class bass player or a world-class MD or, and so I really took that mindset of like, I just got it like that hustle mindset of like, I just want to have so many irons in the fire that I don't, and I don't say no to anything. And, you know, just this right. very scattered, very spread thin kind of mindset, very like scarcity mentality of just like, there really isn't enough work and there's only so many opportunities and there's everyone's here in LA trying to do it. And I fully fed into that storyline. And so I had to sort of realize that like I was creating that storyline, like I can create a different one. I can create a different narrative for how I want to approach these things. So yeah. a lot of it was really just going like, okay, stop sort of waiting for the, you know, breakthrough moment to come from outside of me and just start thinking of myself in a different way and start really like raising the bar for my own kind of creativity, like really just trying to like, I can't think of a better way to say it, but just sort of like impress myself. Like rather than being like, oh, you love the mix. Okay, great. The mix is done. We're all happy. We love the mix. But just being like, do I really, really love this mix? Like what would I do? You know what I mean? Like not, and just really try to make it as internal as possible, which felt risky because it's, it sort of doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to get the gig or not the gig, or I'm going to get paid more money or not get paid more money. But I started to realize like, I want to do all of the things at a level that I'm super, super, super proud of. And not to say that I was like totally phoning it in before. I was just like allowing a lot of my standards, I think, to be defined by others, you know, by what was sort of oh yeah, what they were looking for. Like, oh, this is a great, yeah. this is a great mix because this manager really loves the mix. Or this is the right keyboard player because this you know, uh, A&R came to the rehearsal and really liked the keyboard player or whatever, you know, I, you know, the list could go on and on, but so much of my mindset was predicated on external sort of validation and external sort of affirmation of like, this is good. This is viable. This will pay money for this, whatever. Yeah. And so I had to really it, like it, shift it. Well, it's, it's funny. I, I agree with you completely. And like, funny enough, you, you basically just like quoted, uh, the introduction first episode of this show, which for our listeners has not been released. Amazing. So Wayne has just channeled it. <laughs> um, That's awesome. But uh, yeah, it's amazing um, how powerful, like just reflecting on what you're doing, like stepping back and like trying to look at yourself. I mean, even down to like, I mean, something that I ran into, which is super basic and, and sounds sounds very menial, but it's it's like you charge this much money for a mix. And then you're like, okay, so what am I actually making per hour? And then you start tracking like how long you spend on a mix and you're like, wow, I'm actually, I'm not really making very much money like that. <laughs> and that's like just a simple mathematical thing and, and a realization that maybe you would never come across, but yet alone like put that into the realm of like how you view the way that people view you. I mean, you could go so deep into that and it very obviously would be an extremely long conversation, but but yeah, I think that stuff is super important. And I think you just nailed like a million things <laughs> that are the kind of things that I, I, I want to like, you know, encourage our listeners to, to do, like step back and look at what you're doing. Do you, do you want to play keys with this artist or do you want to be a producer or whatever you want to do? Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so I appreciate that. It was excellent insight. Well, yeah. And one other thing I'll add to that is that something that I have to constantly be reminded of and my wife is, is actually in the process of, of becoming a coach right now, which is, which is super exciting and fun. And she's already doing great. Um, is that like, there'll be times where I'll sort of justify, let's say a quote for something. I'll say, well, I'm thinking this will probably take this long. And it's like this, and I've sort of had this day rate roughly and like da, 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 da. And then I'll sort of talk myself out of like what I really want to quote for something. And I'll be like, well, cause it's not going to take that long. And it's, we're just like, it's a mix for this live video thing. So it's like not going to be that many tracks and like that or whatever. And, and Meg will often be like, yeah, but it doesn't like, it's, it's your mix. Like you're charging for your mix or you're charging for your production. Like just because it doesn't take a long time doesn't mean it needs to be cheaper, you know, and sort of, I don't know if that fits in how that sort of fits into what you're saying about getting sort of paid hourly, but 
there's been times where where again I, I quickly fall back into that scarcity mentality of like oh I don't want to shoot too high because I'll lose the gig or I'll you know put someone out or whatever yeah no there's just a whole rabbit hole we could kind of go down along those oh, yeah. lines of being sort of um uh you know independent contractor status for a freelance for all of for for me my entire sort of professional life um yeah but really realizing like the best work that i that feels the best on every level has been the stuff where i've just been like this is kind of like the i don't want to sell it price you know the like if you really want to do this project with me this is how much it's going to cost and when people have said okay yeah okay let's like we'll we'll talk we'll figure it out whatever and then it's something that i can point back to is like i really said what i wanted you know yeah and well, i think it, it fits in out. um it fits in perfectly because like you mentioned earlier in this business you're always worried about what somebody else is thinking and like as something as simple as quoting somebody you're thinking oh, did i quote them too high or did did I quote them too low? Did they, <laughs> right, right, do they right. think I'm bad now because I was too low or they think I'm, I'm an asshole because I quoted them too high? It's like you, you have to stop yourself from having these, you know, going in these circles. Oh, I could, you know, and there, that happened really quickly. Um, early on, I learned to sort of be like, if I'm going to play bass on someone's song for 50 bucks, like I'm the $50 track bass player guy, you know? And if, if that person calls me a year later and I'm like, oh, I'm 250 a track now, they might pay it, but more than likely in most cases for me i would say that's been the exception and more of the rules been like oh okay and then again in their mind they're thinking well there's someone else who was already 250 a track or whatever when wayne was 50 so we'll just if we're going to pay 250 we're going to call this other person who's 250 the first time and that's why we use wayne because he was 50 whatever you know yeah, right i could you know we could yeah. you know paint these scenarios but i just also so a couple things happened with me there is i had to be willing to let projects go and not try to be everything to everyone not try to get every gig and have someone and even people I worked with before, like I had this kind of realization, like maybe a month ago, I was like, you know, just because I had time for a project or a certain client two years ago, doesn't mean I'm going to have time for them now in the, in that same way. And I, to be really honest, I've, I've had kind of that mindset of people that I really like where I've like, Oh, I'll always make time for this person. Like I have this sort of pre established mindset of like, I'll always make time for this person. Even if I did work with them five years ago and I was significantly less expensive and maybe I didn't have children, I had more time, I had more flexibi right. flexibility, you know? And I've had to start to realize, like, that doesn't mean that they're a bad person. It doesn't mean that they're not making great music. That doesn't mean... It doesn't have to mean anything. It just can mean, like, you know, just because I made that type of a project a priority then doesn't mean I have to make it a priority now. No, exactly, exactly. Uh, the, before we move on, I just make sure for our listeners that they take something more away from uh, this. It sounds like we just talked about money for, for two minutes, but hopefully they, they take one step back and look at like what we're actually talking about is what Wayne went discussed earlier, where you just can't really worry about what people are thinking. We just ended up talking about mixed rates for a minute. But No, absolutely. Yeah, you can't, you can't. And I, I, I that's something I have to remind myself all the time. You know, so I, I just have to know, you know, what my yeses and my nos are and and one thing, other thing I'll say that it's been a cool shift for me is the way the live thing sort of was the three pieces of people, music, money, hopefully you have two out of three that you really like on a given, you know, right. it's like a measuring stick. But when it comes to the studio, I've started to realize like I do like to work on projects based on different kind of sets of values. And so now it's like relational value, creative sort of potential or value, and then like monetary value. And so I try to measure like all of the opportunities that, I have to make music into those sort of categories. And so I can have a certain number of projects that I'm maybe making with friends and there is no money or maybe we're splitting any sort of money that would be made. And those might be extremely creative and very satisfying and really great relationally and then not yield any money, you know? So, so I try to look yeah. at things and not be too, you know, not, not to be too critical, but just to acknowledge like if my schedule is full of all these really fun creative projects, but I'm not making any money, well, that's not really working out too well for you know providing for a family but but if the, i've been in the other seasons too where i've just been like i gotta make money i gotta make money like i've got you know bills and family support and all that kind of stuff and then i realized like wow i'm not working on projects that are purely creative or purely just hanging with friends to make something that we love and there's no pressure and i've tried to get a little more clear on what 
sort of projects yield. Because also if I want them to yield something that they're not set up to yield, then I'll also be kind of let down. Like I took this gig for the money and, and I was hoping I would connect way more personally with this person. And then I'm like, wait a minute. It was never about that. And that's okay. Yeah. You know? I totally agree 100% with you. You um, People definitely need to know what they're getting into and why with every gig. And ask your, yeah, ask your friends. Ask like Sometimes my wife has been the biggest sounding board, to, honestly, to help me see that stuff. Because sometimes I get really just, again, like I want, I like working. I want to make good music. I want to make a living, you know? And sometimes she has to be like, hey, just remember, like this person's really cool, but like they, it's this kind of gig. Like last time you worked with them, it was this kind of process. And that doesn't have to be bad, but just it isn't, it's going to be that. And it's probably not going to be something else. Right. And so, you know, get feedback from friends, from family, from, you know, ask your friends like, hey, did I complain to you last time I worked with this person? <laughs> you know, because if I did, like, remind me, because I certainly look back with rose colored glasses where I'm like, everybody I've worked with is cool. Like every song turned out great, you know, and it's like, that's not always true. You know? Yeah, no. When you're in the trenches, you, you get blinded by it sometimes. Totally. But um, yeah, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to leave without touching on um, the Songwriters Collective. Oh, yeah. So what inspired you to start it and what would your two-sentence description be of what it is and, and what you're sharing with the community there? Yeah, yeah. LA Songwriters Collective was started by um, myself and two other friends, Kevin Yap and Jean Botrell, in 2012. Um, and it really was just to create community for songwriters. Um, there's often, you know, songwriting can be a very solitary experience. You know, mixing obviously can be solitary, producing at times can be solitary. And so we just thought, you know, we wanted community as creatives. Um, we were all doing various things and a lot of things that were bringing us a lot of fulfillment creatively were either ourselves making music on our own or with a couple people. And we just didn't have a greater sense of sort of connecting with other creatives around town and um, kind of learning. We wanted to create a space to learn from each other, to learn best practices, to grow, to create accountability for our growth. So so yeah, so now it's really um, by songwriters for songwriters. You know, that's kind of the basic thing. Um, but we have kind of a combination of sort of educational opportunities um, and various workshops. And then we have like multiple events throughout the month. All of them are on Zoom now, of course. Yeah, but we did do a lot, most everything in person um, up until the pandemic. But, but it's been cool because we've been able to connect with people all over the country and the world now that we've been totally virtual. So we'll have different... Oh, uh, that's cool. Like industry experts come and share different types of events and do Q&As. Like we had Dan Wilson last month come and talk, which was really cool. And um, so we've had all kinds of incredible people, Ross Golan, um, uh, people like that will come share and we'll do Q&As. And then we have, like I said, va various sort of um, workshops and things. But really at the core of it is just creating community for people to be creatively sustainable. That's amazing. Do you see a lot of dots being connected or are there people that are now like writing partners that met at one of your meetups? And oh, absolutely. Stuff like that? Yeah, it's yeah. really cool. There's a, there's a lot of people I've met. They're like, yeah, I met someone at an LESC event and we've been writing every week for the last like two years. Right now. So it, I think because we've really made it our, our point to cultivate something really authentic and really real and there's sort of no pretense about and there's sort of no holding back as far as what our experience has been, what we've learned, what our mistakes have been. And um, obviously there's a lot of ways to get information. There's a lot of workshops. There's a lot of, you know, organizations around town. Um, but we really wanted to focus on community and focus on sustainability. So that's yeah. great. Yeah. No, I think stuff like that is awesome. I, I chatted with an, another guest about just the community and, you know, the studio community, everybody is becoming, even before the pandemic, everyone's becoming more and more isolated. And like, I made all my hit records in, in my backyard and <laughs> my two friends came over and wrote with me. And, um, I don't know, coming from a place that was a studio with open doors and people going in and out, like, I just feel like that community needs to be encouraged. So every time I run, a, you know, run into somebody who is encouraging community while I feel like a lot of this business is becoming isolated into little little circles um i just want to make sure that people know that there's people doing dope stuff like that out there yeah so, thank you thank you for highlighting but, that yeah all right so wayne before we go i like to put uh put my guests on the spot and ask them what their current goal is and what is the one thing that you're going to do next to get there yeah um my current goal is to approach every project or not 
not even every project. Let's just start with the next project. Um, the next project with um, my own sort of barometer as being the only um, measure of if I want to do it. So meaning I'm not going to consider the sort of broader potential for a release, let's say, in terms of, oh, it could go on this playlist or it could fit in a, this type of a film or on a commercial, et cetera. Not because those things aren't important, but just because I think as what we were talking about earlier, I really have based so much of my yeses and nos and sort of things like that based on these external factors rather than going like, do I like it? Do I really like this song? Do I really want to listen to this song for many hours? And the the times when I've really made that my my barometer, it's it's been really great. I've been really, really happy with the result. And it's also worked in those other ways as well. So, so the thing I'm going to do next is I was actually just sent a song um, from another producer friend of mine. And they said, hey, I'm getting close to being done with the production on this. And I want to know what you think. And also, if you might be interested in mixing it. So I'm going to listen to it with only that criteria. And I'm going to say yes or no based on that. Amazing. It ties right in with pretty much everything that we were discussing uh, for the last last few minutes. Tapped right <laughs> yeah. in there. Yeah. Well, Wayne, thank you so much. This has been really great. We should do this again because I definitely feel like uh, there's there's some more paths that we can we can go down. So maybe a later date. Cool. Um, at episode 100 or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, do you want to tell listeners where they can get in touch with you or find uh, the songwriting collective or, yeah. or whatever? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. If you. Probably the easiest way to connect with me is just on Instagram, just Wayne G. Miller. Um, and then LA Songwriters Collective is at LA Songwriters on Instagram. Um, I know we have a Facebook. I don't have Facebook, so I don't know what goes on over there. But um, you can find, yeah, at LA Songwriters, LA Songwriters Collective.com. And then just at Wayne G. Miller on uh, Instagram and I guess Wayne G. Miller.com as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, man. This has been great. So I uh, hope to uh, do this again. Hopefully we'll see each other in person awesome. sooner than later. Thanks for having yeah. me. It's Thanks so much, here. dude. Yep. So that's a close on episode six. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support. And uh, if you don't mind subscribing, leaving a review. If you want to join in our conversation at the Complete Producer Network, go to completeproducer.net. You can sign up there. It's a lot of great people over there. Looking forward to next week. I'll see you then.